Amen. Good morning, Connection Church. I just want to sit right off the beginning in what Caroline just said. What an incredible reminder, right? You don't have to be equipped. You just need to be called. You don't have to be equipped. God equips the people that he calls. I want you to think about that. You don't have to be equipped. You just have to be called. For us at Connection, we want serving to not just be a set of tasks that you complete. We want it to be a calling that you fulfill. We, we want it to be something that you step into because you've heard from the Lord. Uh, and, and you may say, God, that sounds like a lot. That sounds like a, a lot to ask of a person. You may even say, Pastor, I don't even exactly know what it is that God wants me to do. I, I don't know, I've not, I've not heard the voice of the Lord saying, hey, serve here. Then this is what I would encourage you with. You are in the exact same place that every Christian has been in history, period, across the board. Every Christian has had to pause, go before their heavenly father and say, God, how would you use me? What would you like for me to do? How can I serve? How, how have you gifted me? Where do I fit in this body? And this is what I would encourage you with too. There's no better place to, to pause, to think, to consider, God, what, what is it that you want me to do than at prayer and worship? We're gonna have prayer and worship tonight at six. Childcare will be provided. And I wouldn't just invite you to think about it this way. Come and have that conversation. If that's you, if you're not 100% sure where it is that I should serve, come and have that conversation. And, and this, is a, this is what I know about conversations, right? You have to stop whatever it is that you're doing in order to have them, right? And the question that we have to ask is, is this conversation important enough in order for me to have it. But we, we are dedicated as a church to helping all of us, everybody that's a follower of Jesus, to, to hear the voice of the Lord and have some clarity about where it is that we are uh, meant to serve. I can promise you that God wants to have that conversation with you and we wanna do whatever we can. Also on a practical note with that, I, as we've cast vision for, hey, come and help us serve and, and, and greet and to care for even more kids, um, don't feel like you're signing up for your forever calling with that. Like for some of us, we, we may just dip our toe in and say yes to, to this opportunity and maybe we'll serve there for a couple months and then we'll move on and God will move us into a new direction. I, I've experienced this of stepping in, meeting a need. Maybe you're the kind of person that just sees a need, meets a need and, that's, and, and you do that for a little while, then you meet another need. Maybe you step into this and you're like a lot of people that we've experienced in KK, you step in and you're like, this is what God designed me to do. This, these are the people that I'm meant to care for. And this is the ministry that God has called me to. And then some of you will be like Kevin and Caroline, right? That you serve uh, in KK, you serve students, you'll do college, you'll do parking, you'll do just about anything. And, and you'll, you'll do anything and everything at the same time. And you'll just knock it out of the park. But even if you do know exactly what it is that you feel called to, I would just encourage you come out tonight and to be refreshed in the Lord, to come and pray, to worship together, childcare will be provided for that. So we're in a series called Opportunity and Opposition. We've been looking at the book of Acts and thinking about some of the key cultures that were characteristic of the early church Been thinking about and looking at things like they were generous, they, were, they served, they lived in community together. And we've been thinking about what that looks like. Today, we're gonna talk a lot about what is this culture of serving? How did the early church serve one another? 
And I, I'm, I'm really excited about Acts 6, which is where we're gonna be today. And so j- just for my, my own protection from my own kind of jumbled thoughts, here's the big idea kind of right up front. I, this, is, this is what I want to really stick with us today. And this is what I see uh, in Acts 6. And, and it's really been a pattern over the, the book of Acts so far with opportunity and opposition. I want this to stick with you. In God's hands, in God's hands, that's an important part of this. In God's hands, today's opposition is tomorrow's opportunity. In God's hands, today's opposition is tomorrow's opportunity. So to this point in the book of Acts, the church is just growing. It's growing by the thousands. It's, 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 going, it's just going crazy. It's, it's, one scholar estimates that there's, there's easily over 10,000 followers of Jesus at this point who have, who have, have made decisions, right? So these thousands of people, this is, that's, that's thousands of individual decisions to follow Jesus, right? That's, that's thousands of personal testimonies. That's thousands of baptisms. That's thousands of declarations of what God has done. That means that's thousands of lives that have been changed. And that is our opportunity, right? We celebrate that. That's the stuff we look forward to, right? But what we've seen all along the way as there have been thousands of opportunities to celebrate Jesus at the same time, the church and the apostles have had a lot of opposition, right? They've had a lot of opposition. They've had a lot of stuff come up. Look at this. Let's just look at a few things that we've seen so far. They had this, this great opportunity, right? In Acts chapter two, this tremendous opportunity. The Holy Spirit has come. Holy Spirit comes down and, and they're able to proclaim in an insane way the wonders of Jesus. Everybody there present can hear them speaking in their own tongue. What an opportunity to see the gospel go forward. And then some give this opposition, right? This, this social skepticism, this societal skepticism, right? Man, these dudes are drunk. They don't know what they're talking about. They are out of their mind. Tremendous opportunity tremendous opposition. We see, we see just a short while after, they get a chance to serve the sick. We see Peter and John say, Peter and gold, Pe- uh, Peter and gold, uh, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. And they, they're, they're healing people. They're, they're serving the community. They're serving the sick. And what do we see in Acts 4? Religious regulation. Hey, you can't do that that way. You can't go about preaching the name of Jesus like this. We need to regulate the way it is that God has called you to serve and the way that God's hand is moving. We need to regulate this. We see just shortly after that, we we get a chance to see the disciples being generous to the community. We see this in Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own, but they had everything in common. They were selling land and giving generously to the community. Acts 5.1, opposition. We have deceiving disciples sneaking in, trying to use uh, the church's generosity and this movement that is occurring. This is tens of thousands of people. Miraculous things are happening and they slide their own agenda in. We have deceiving disciples. We see Acts 5, we didn't cover this this last week, but we see the, the apostles are assembled, assembled and they're, they're equipping the saints. They're gathered uh, at, at, um, in, in Solomon's portico and they're preaching the word and they're equipping the saints. And it says people were nervous to maybe join in with them, but everybody respected them. And they're preaching to all of these people and they're equipping the saints. And then immediately 
opposition. The high priest rose up and all who were with him and they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and they put them in prison. Opportunity, the gospel's going forward. The saints are being equipped. The community is receiving generosity. Opposition, persecution, deceiving disciples, religious regulation, social skepticism. Understand this about Acts. There's a lot, a lot of these challenges are, are maybe a, a threat to the movement, right? Or a threat to these disciples. We, we see these things that there, there's, there's a threat to the life of the early church. But I want you to understand something. There's, there's an even bigger threat occurring. And that threat is that what Jesus promised, what happened is under threat. Jesus promised, think back to Acts 1.8, the gospel was promised to spread and to spread and to spread. Acts 1.8 is that you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is motivating these apostles. They're brought in by the religious leaders to say, hey, what are you doing? How could you do this? We can only testify to what we've seen and heard. We've been told, we have to obey Jesus. He has promised us that this thing is gonna keep going. It's gonna keep going and spreading and spreading and spreading. So the main challenge here, whatever we're facing, and we know it's coming, right? We're gonna have some opportunity in Acts 6. We know there's gonna be some opposition, but understand what is under threat is this promise that Jesus has given to these disciples that the gospel is gonna go forward. The church was promised to keep jumping geographical and ethnic boundaries. This is gonna go on and on and on. Understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't drop. If these religious rulers have their way, if the disciples stay in prison, if deceiving disciples becomes the norm, the mission is over before it even begins. Folks, at this point, we're not, we're not even out of Jerusalem yet. These promises that Jesus has given, that is what's being opposed. So Luke is moving us as the reader to see how God is in fact keeping his promise. When we're, when we're thinking back and we're remembering, wow, that was that opposition that we faced, but look at the opportunity that came right out of it. Luke is moving us to see God is staying faithful to his promises. The church is growing and it's going and it's growing and it's going. We've seen that each opportunity, there's fresh opposition. So in Acts 6, Acts 6, 1, we're immediately alerted. Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity is good stuff happening. We also need to keep an eye out for the opposition. So we're gonna look at Acts 6. I'm gonna back up one verse into Acts 5. I'm gonna start there and then we're gonna read Acts 6, one through seven. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. House to house, in the temple, everywhere they went. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, when they were multiplying, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith into the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramenus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, 
and Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me just pray real quick as we've read that. Jesus, we love you. God, I pray that your word would come alive this morning, that your Holy Spirit would come. Lord, that you would root out any opposition in our own hearts to your work, that you would root out any opposition, that you would help us to see the opportunity that there is in serving you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the church is growing and it's multiplying, meaning disciples, people have decided, people have decided to follow Jesus and are telling other people about this good news of the gospel. We see that in verse one. And in the midst of that growth, one race represented in the life of the church was being treated differently than another race. We see this clearly. It's not a good different. It's a bad different. Notice the text doesn't say they just felt like they were being treated poorly. It says that they were in fact treated differently. There's something serious going on. This isn't something where we can just gloss over what the tension is here. The 12 apostles gathered together a lot of the disciples. It would be a lot like, like this. So obviously our entire church isn't gathered here. Many of them will be at the 11. Many will watch online and many just are still with family or something like that. But it would be like gathering together all the disciples, everybody that's a follower of Jesus here, getting as many of them together. We gotta put our heads together on this issue and figuring out what is going on here. How are we gonna fix this problem? That would have included people that were giving the complaint. That would have been these Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, coming against or bringing their complaint to the Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Hebrews, and putting this problem before the whole gathering and saying, how are we gonna put our heads together on this? And I, I want you, I, I wanna just slow down on this point for just a second, because I don't think we can appreciate the solution that the disciples come to without really wrestling with what is the problem here. This wasn't a perception issue. The Hellenists didn't just feel neglected. This wasn't a group of, of little old timers that just were bored and complaining or just a bunch of young people trying to cause a problem. This was legit complaints, legit uh, frustrations. As the disciples are multiplying and growing, the number, number of disciples at this point is well over 10,000 people. And as I've, I've I've thought about this. I've tried to, to put myself in this scenario of, of what is the actual tension here? What is really going on? I think it would have sounded something like this. Hey, Peter, James, I hear you talking about the gospel being for all nations. In fact, I've left my own family to follow Christ. I hear you talking about being one in Christ. I love you like you are my own brother. I hear you proclaiming we should fight for unity, but I need to understand why my grandmother is going hungry on Tuesday and Friday because all of my Jewish friends, their grandmothers are well-fed every day of the week. Listen, Peter, James, John, I love you, but brothers, do I count or am I just counted? Was I just a cool statistic for Luke to record as he's writing this? Or do I count as a person? Are my problems your problems now in Christ? Or am I just a problem? Do I have a seat at the table? Or am I just supposed to take a seat? 
Am I just supposed to occupy a chair? Am I gifted in the body of Christ? Or am I just supposed to give? Here's how the 12 could have responded. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. We'll be praying for you guys. Well, if you only knew everything that we go through, you wouldn't make such a big deal about this. You'd appreciate all the work that we do. I could have said, well, buddy, I, I mean, I just don't know what we can do. This is just how we've always done things. Or Joey will like this one, right? Thoughts and prayers. I know there's tension here. Well, thoughts and prayers. I think Acts 5.42 clues us into maybe why the disciples weren't dismissive of this tension or they weren't dismissive of the complaint brought before them. This is, this is the real racial tension existing in the life of the early church. Like we are gonna worship the same Messiah, but this class of people is treated one way and we are treated another. And I think Acts 5.42 helps us understand why the disciples were like, this is a real issue. It says every day in the temple, when they were all gathered or house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were in these people's houses. They were in these people's lives. They understood their successes. They understood what they celebrated. They understood their stories. They understood their culture. They understood their struggles. And so when this complaint arises, the disciples are like, we gotta get our heads together on this. Have you ever had that moment at work when something has gone wrong, right? Something's happened and you are directly at fault for what happened. I had this happen like last week where somebody brought up in a meeting like, hey, did we get that video thing? It was actually the video that we just watched right before the sermon. There was, that was a week delayed and that is my fault completely. And somebody brought up like, hey, did somebody have that conversation with John about getting this video going? And everybody was looking around like, it's me, it's me, it's my fault. And you know, right, you know that feeling of like, there's a tension in this entire team and somebody has failed to do what they were supposed to do and you just gotta own it. I think the apostles are saying, oh, I, I, I get it. I'm in these people's houses. I'm, I'm in these Greek speaking Jews houses and we are seeing people come to faith by the thousands. And what we are doing to support the Hebrew community is not what we're doing to support the Greek speaking community. Can you feel the weight of this problem yet? As the church is, is growing and it's beginning to look a lot more, understand we are seeing success the church is beginning to look more like what God promised that it would. People who were new to the faith from every tribe and tongue and nation, they needed to know, do I really count or am I just supposed to show up? I love this about the Greek speaking community right here. They hold the church accountable to live out what it is that they preached in the temple and from house to house. So how does, the church early, how does the early church respond then? I love this. They put their best people on it. Notice they didn't just put their signs and wonders team on it. It's like, hey, let's throw a miracle at this. 
Let's make something crazy. I mean, people are lining up. In the, if you go back to Acts 5, people are lining up. They're bringing their, de- their sick and their, their, not their dead, but their sick into Jerusalem and putting them in the street so that Peter's shadow could fall on them, hoping that that was gonna cause a miracle. And there is significant tension existing in the life of the church and they didn't throw a miracle at it. They put their best spirit-filled, high in character people on the problem. You notice one of the first great church growth and racial reconciliation strategies came from the church in Acts. You know what it was? Serving one another in a sacrificial way. And I wanna be really clear. There's a lot that can be said about systemic injustice and racial reconciliation and justice in America today. And I just feel unqualified to say almost all of it. But what I do know is this, is if the early church faced, the simil- faced similar issues that we face today, we should probably resort to their means of reconciliation. They have a pretty solid track record. They've gone from a movement of just a couple hundred people to tens of thousands of people proclaiming the name of Jesus. And they are representing every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now watch this. Here's what I believe with all of my heart. This is what I believe with all my heart. Because the church took this issue seriously, they had the opportunity to be a credible witness to the rest of the world. Because they, they, they didn't ignore the problem, they didn't dismiss it, they didn't say this is someone else's to solve, let's just preach the gospel. They ran right headlong into it and said, Jesus, we need you. I believe if they pretended like there wasn't a problem, I think if they make light of it, if they return with emotional accusations, they would have missed out on the chance to turn this opposition into an opportunity. Because the church took the racial tension seriously, God's hand blessed them with the opportunity to be a witness to the world. For the sake of time, I wanna cut to the chase on it. I believe this. I believe that without the service of Stephen, we don't get the proclamation of Paul. I think if we don't have this sacrificial, transformative service of Stephen, we don't get Paul. If the church doesn't get this right, if they don't find unity within, they have no witness to the world. We have evidence of this in Acts 6, 8 through 15. Stephen, one of the men that they set forward as, hey, go and serve these people. We see that he's there serving tables. And then fast forward to 8 through 13, and he is proclaiming the gospel and teaching scripture in such a powerful way that people from from Egypt and Turkey and from Europe and from all over, you, you can just say it this way, from north, south, east, and west, Nobody could stand up to Stephen and his ability to proclaim the gospel. And you can either take it as a coincidence or as inspiration that Luke puts these two events together. Somebody that identifies this tension within, hits his knees in service of these people and says, I'll do whatever I need to do to serve these people. That one scene later, he gets to proclaim the gospel in such a powerful way that it is affecting the world so much so that he is gonna be martyred. And JC is gonna pick that baton up and run with it. But this is, 
This is the beginning seeds of Paul coming to faith, the missionary that we celebrate, the theologian that we read, the, the writer of scripture that we read. I think Stephen was able to go and proclaim the gospel to such a diverse people and say, Jesus died for each and every one of us and that this new gathering of people called the church, we can in fact be unified because I've seen it with my own two eyes. And he ran directly into that with service. One of Luke's clear efforts is to note that tackling this opposition head on is part of what God used to fulfill Acts 1.8. And that this opposition was met with the hands and feet of people with a heart to serve. So what can we learn from Acts 6 about serving? There's a few things that I've thought about serving, this culture of service that we wanna create in the life of our church and what we see in Acts chapter six. Number one, serving faithfully has fruit that we can't predict. Serving faithfully has fruit that we can't predict. Stephen and Philip said yes to meeting the material needs of widows long before they were remembered as heralds of the gospel. So think about, it, think about your personal story of how you don't, you don't know how God is going to use you yet. Not to the full extent. But understand Stephen and Philip, that we, we know they're going to go on and they're going to proclaim the gospel in a way. Stephen does it so good he gets killed for it. Philip does it and he, he's like, gets disapparated into the air and then appears somewhere else. And he runs along the side of this Ethiopian eunuch and he's proclaiming the gospel and teaching. He's, he's, he's teaching the deep parts of the book of Isaiah to this guy. When's the last time you were doing that? Just like, oh yeah, I know, Isaiah 30, I got it. Not me. When we, we remember these men for these things, but where they started was saying yes to serving. Serving has fruit that we don't, know fully. You may not can see, and this can be frustrating, right? This can be a frustrating reality about serving. You may not can see how God is going to use your faithfulness today, and that can be challenging. But in God's hands, today's opposition, your frustration today in God's hands can be God's opportunity tomorrow. Serving faithfully has fruit that we can't predict. Number two, serving is not reserved for those who simply can't cut it elsewhere. Serving is just not for those who just have a ton of time on their hands. We're all busy. We all have stuff that's filling up our lives. Serving is not reserved for those who simply can't cut it elsewhere. Think about these seven men. All seven men appointed, they were known for their character. They had lived their lives among the disciples in such a way that when tens of thousands of people gather to say, how are we gonna fix this? They're like, hey, I know just the seven men. These are the men we're gonna send to serve these tables. They had wisdom. They had shown evidence of the Holy Spirit living in them. How many people can you say that about? How many people can you say, oh yeah, for sure. Full of the Holy Spirit. I know that for sure. I'm sure there's, there's plenty of people, but I, I don't think that's numbering like, a ton and ton and ton of people. They were known and established in their character, their wisdom, and that they were full of the Holy Spirit. At least two, two sevenths of this are shown, are less than two chapters later, sharing the gospel in extraordinary ways, but they started at serving tables. Number three, serving is a calling. Serving is a calling. It's not just a set of tasks to complete, it's a calling. 
the whole community of faith, the, whole, the apostles gather all the disciples together and they identified the giftedness of these seven men. There was one part clarity, and this is an interesting part of serving, right? There's one part of clarity, like, okay, yes, I'm, I am somewhat gifted to meet this need. And then there's the other like three-fourths of that that is learning on the job, right? So these, these men are, are stepping in. I'm sure some of them, probably old Timon, right? He's probably like, I don't know if I can do this. Stephen's probably like, I got it, I'm in. But Timon's probably like, mm -hmm, I don't know. There's one part, this calling, this giftedness that you're sure I can do this. And there's this other part that's just learning on the job. That's the nature of serving. But our calling is what keeps us going when our giftedness feels uncertain. I want, we, we, we want serving to be a, a culture in the life of our church. And one practical aspect of this, that as we've thought about this, as we've reflected on how, how is that a reality in our church, was a simple procedural thing, made it a little too complicated. We used to, we used to want people to go through heart and soul uh, in order to serve before they serve, but we don't wanna just have boxes for you to check or hoops for you to jump through. I want something much more difficult. It's not even difficult, but a much higher hurdle to clear. I wanna know, have you heard from God? I wanna know, has he called you to serve in this way? Not just that you have the like obedience meter to sit through heart and soul, but like, are you called to serve in this way? Serving is a calling. Number four, serving allows the gospel to flourish. We see this clearly, bookends of, one, of verse one and verse seven, right? The gospel multiplied and it went forward. Verse seven, the gospel multiplied and it went forward. It says, it says clearly, it's tied directly to the apostles were freed up to continue preaching and teaching and the gospel went forward. And it went because people served. Meeting practical aspects of ministry allows the gospel to flourish. We have seen this to be the case for years at Connection, right? So many people when sharing their testimony, if we remember baptism videos or, or just stories of people who have come to faith, there's always this connection, right? Of like, I remember that person in the parking lot. I remember the smile on their face. I remember dropping off my kids at KK and my kid had so much fun that it just impacted me. I had to know like, who is this Jesus that these volunteers get so excited about? Or this, the greeter at the door that day, they just, it was freezing and they had the doors open, which I still don't understand. But anyway, they had the doors open and they like greeted me and they smiled and they were so excited. I mean, I just had to understand who is this Jesus that could give so much joy. Serving allows the gospel to flourish. So what exactly do we mean by serving? And, I, and I'll admit, I think back to Acts 6, and honestly, if you go look up a bunch of sermons about Acts 6, a lot of them are gonna be like, oh, the original deacons. And that's because one of the words in here is diaconias. I won't bore you with the details. But if you look at Ephesians 4, verse 12, we see this in 11, right? God gave some apostles, some prophets, uh, some evangelists, but then verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The same word for Work of ministry, your calling to ministry is the same exact word for service. So this calling, make the connection, for these seven to go and serve these tables was just a practical aspect of their entire ministry. So when we say, when we, when we talk about serving, we're talking about this same 
idea that as God gives gifts to the congregation, as God gives gifts to the church, to those assembled that call Jesus Lord, it's the same word happening in Ephesians 4, verse 12, as it is that's happening in Stephen. In other words, the same power that was available to Stephen is what's also available to you in your ministry or your area of service. And, and, I, and I, would give you, I would give you this definition. If you want to like a functional, just practical definition of serving or ministry, kicking up dust in service of the king. The idea of you look really deep, you dig around for a little bit. It's this word picture of this idea that the king has now told me to do something and I run and I go to do it. I'm running the errand. And it's this idea of as my sandals leave the ground to go do it, I'm kicking up dust. There's one part excitement that the king would call me to do something. And then there's this obedience of kicking up dust in, on the way to go do it. What do we mean by serving? We mean kicking up dust in service to the king. Whatever the king is calling you to do, kick that dust up. And serving has these two practical parts, right? It has the tasks that you do, right? Service is on the one hand, the tasks that you do, but it's also the people that you love, the people that you serve. Stephen served tables in order to love the Hellenistic Jews. Whatever ministry you are in right now, if you find yourself doing tasks without any love for the people that you're serving, you're not doing Christian ministry. You're not doing what the king has called you to do. If it's just tasks and tasks and tasks, you're missing it. It's the people that you get to love in doing the tasks. I just wanna think about this real quick as we kind of start landing the plane. What keeps people from serving? I asked a few people in my life, like, what do you think these things are? What keeps people from serving practically? Number one, the why is just not clear enough. There's no, there's, the why is not clearly communicated. So whatever the task is, it's just not compelling. It's just not something that thrills your heart to get them on board with. Number two, we don't think it will really make a difference. I've been there. Like, I just don't know me serving in this way. Is this, is this going to make a huge difference? There's wisdom there, right? There's wisdom to consider. Is this, is this the thing that I should jump on board with? But one thing that keeps people from serving is that I just don't know that it's gonna make a difference. Number three, we think someone else is gonna do it, right? Like, this is a need. This is something that is going on. I, I, I realize somebody needs to serve in this area, but somebody else will do it, right? We got, I mean, look at all the people in the room. There's a whole other service and that room's full too. Somebody else will do it. Or number four, it's just out of sight and it's just out of mind. We just don't really think about it. It's just not something, and that this is true, right? We're busy. We have a job, I have a family. I've got activities. I got different stuff that I have going on. I just don't think about it. And I just wanna share this kind of as a personal illustration here at the end. All of those things were true for me recently for one of my hobbies. I like to lift weights. That's one of the things that I like to do. It just kind of breaks up my day. It's just something that I like to do and I enjoy doing it. But I had lost my why. I didn't know why I was doing it. I just was kind of going through the motions. I didn't really think what I was doing was making a huge difference. You know, I thought somebody else will lift these weights. You know, all of the reasons for not serving was, I, I, I looked back and it was me the other day in the gym and I'm, I'm in there and I'm, in, I'm by myself, which is unusual. My partner abandoned me and I'm working out and I'm just kind of like, you know, some days you just got to get through it. 
and I'm lifting a weight. I'm just kind of following a program and I have something on the bar that's it's, it's too heavy in my mind for me to do by myself. I needed somebody there to kind of spot me. So there's this guy that I met in the gym and I mean, he is just peeled. He, I mean, he is shredded. He's like Arnold Schwarzenegger had multiple children and he was one of them or something. And he is just shredded. And I'd met him a couple of times like, hey man, could you spot me? I felt confidence like he could just curl this if he had to. And so he comes over and I'm like, I'm like, hey, you know, I just got to get this a few times. And he looks at his partner. He's like, two times? He's about to get this 10 times. And his partner's like, I want to see the work. And he's like, getting all fired up about me lifting weights. I'm like, well, I didn't ask for an audience. This is getting a little weird. And he gets not a COVID approved distance from my face. And he's like, it's time, lock it in. And I was like, okay. And I lay down and he leans over me and he says, it's all in the mind. You got 10 reps, let's go. And I'm like, oh God. And I've, I've lifted this weight on my own a total of one time ever. That was it. And he's like, you got 10. And so here I go, one, two, three, four. I'm like, what is happening right now? This is insane. Five, I'm like, that's good enough. He's like, no pausing, keep going. Six, seven, eight. And I'm like, I've exceeded all expectations that I could have ever had. And he's like, don't you do it, keep going. And I'm like, nine. And he, I was like, he basically curls the last one and he gets it off my chest. And I stand up and he again gets right in my face. He was like, you should never have to do that weight only one time again. That's easy for you. You gotta go way up, good job. I was like, oh my gosh. I immediately packed my bag and left. But <laughs> what I learned from that, it, it, it's, been, it's changed. I'm, my heart is beating so fast right now just thinking about it. Because what he gave me was belief and conviction. His little bit of belief in me and conviction that when he looked at me that I could do it, it just, it caused me to soar. And that's just with my hobby, just a little bit of belief and a little bit of conviction is enough to transform opposition into opportunity. God can take our little bit of belief in what he can do and in who, and who he has called us to be and our little bit of conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. And he can transform what we see as our greatest challenge into an opportunity for his name to be made great. Just a little bit of conviction and a little bit of belief in what God can do. He can use you in areas that you don't even know that you could serve right now. He could use you to transform someone's life out there in the world, you personally. You can make a difference. You can do ministry. You are needed. You can help the gospel flourish. You can help build God's church. Other people are watching. Where will you begin your journey? And what's the next step in your journey? Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. God, just take our little bit of conviction, take our little bit of belief. God, use it for your name. God, we just believe that what we're feeling opposition in today, it could be in our marriage, it could be with our kids, it could be in our job, it could be with our calling. It could be just, God, I haven't heard from you in forever. 
It could be, I've not put myself in a place to hear from you in forever. God, take that opposition and turn it into an opportunity for your name to be made great. God, I just pray over this room right now that wherever you are leading us, Father, that we wanna go. I pray over my friends here that if we, if we have not put our yes on the table for Jesus in a long time to say, whatever you're calling me to, I'm willing to do it. I pray that yes over our body right now. I pray that you would take down whatever strongholds, whatever beliefs that we have about ourselves, whatever beliefs we have about you and what you couldn't use us to do. I just pray that the Holy Spirit, you would come and dismantle those things right now. God, we wanna see people go from death to life. We wanna see people go from unconnected to connected to the body of Christ. We wanna see people take next steps that honor you. We wanna see people say yes to picking up their lives and moving to other ends of the world to declare your goodness. God, we wanna see churches planted. We wanna see them planted here. We wanna see them planted in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Your name deserves that, Father. We proclaim that this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen.